Bhagavato Arato Samasambuddhasa Homage to the Blessed, Noble, and Perfectly Enlightened One. Namo Saranto Suchedo Ye Olahudi San Miao San Putoshi Namo Saranto Suchedo Ye Olahudi San Miao San Putoshi Wu Shang Shen Shen Wei Miao Fa Bai 愿皆如来真实意 The unsurpassed, deep, profound, subtle, wonderful Dharma in a hundred thousand million eons is difficult to encounter. Now that I've come to receive and hold it within my sight and hearing, I bow to fathom the thus come one's true and actual meaning. 师父上人,各位师兄,大家阿弥陀佛 Venerable Master, fellow Dharma friends, welcome to our Sutra lecture tonight. Uh, if you are here for the very first time, I met a lot of new friends at James Barra's Thursday night group, and I met another bunch of new friends today at the Young Adults Dharma Council, uh, and there's a bunch of us who are regulars here. Uh, you're about to listen to the Flower Dharmant Sutra, and this is a formal Sutra lecture style, so what we just did is called requesting Dharma and that's the way it's been done for many many centuries and we're kind of reviving it here in the West and trying to make it uh, find a home here along with the lecture itself just the idea of the the words of the Buddha are something that you can uh, deal with something that you can add to your life to benefit and we're now going to use the uh, the title that's on the front cover of your sutra and invoke the sacred presence of the flower adornment assembly of Buddhas and Bodhisattvas invisibly. We hope to do that. So please chant along. We're going to do that seven times. It's in Chinese, but uh, um, you can kind of get the feel if, if Chinese is new to you. Oh, wow. 
So again, welcome anybody who is joining us online, because um, we're webcasting as we go tonight out to the world. And um, let me explain a bit about what we do here, because it's uh, probably hard to figure out at first look unless somebody explains what's going on. This is a, a Buddhist sutra. It's a Buddhist text. The words the Buddha actually spoke. And we're taking one chapter. We're taking a little piece of it and going through it line by line, explaining in um, kind of Buddhism for the 21st century, trying to bring these timeless insights of the Buddha's wisdom into words and concepts that a thinking person in the 21st century can, can make sense of. And it's, uh, we do it, we're definitely on the bridge. We're not, it's not completely in English yet. So we have the Chinese here because the, uh, the, the tradition that is practiced at this monastery on Saturday night, which is uh, the Chinese Mahayana, um, is, was brought here by this teacher, Master Xuanhua. And we're digesting um, in the, the Master Hua came in 62 and the, uh, uh, he packed our, packed our knapsacks, packed our backpacks full for a couple centuries of travel. We got lots and lots of Dharma mm, resources to work on. One of them are these texts. This is something that he really valued because he lectured every single night, every single night, and twice on Saturdays and twice on Sundays for 30-some years without exception. Um, we can just add cushions and make another row down on this side. Please feel free. But do watch your head with the, the wood as you sit up, if you sit on the side there. So uh, we're carrying on uh, Master Xuanhua's own uh, perspective here, which is to say that... Uh, it's a good and valuable thing to do to open the Buddhist sutras and just try your best. Use your wisdom to make sense of them. Um, in the 30 years that we've been doing this, we've made progress. We we're clearer now about what they meant than we were 30 years ago because, number one, our language skills are improved. We know a little bit more about Chinese after trying it for three, three decades. Not a lot, but more, some in more insight. And also, people have been trying to put the principles into practice, trying to actually live uh, a lifestyle that's informed by meditation, by holding the precepts, by uh, eating harmlessly, by changing according to uh, traditional um, ways of practice. Most importantly, I guess you'd say, um, trying to learn to become better people because that's really the foundation. And we shouldn't assume that, that uh, our culture has those values in place. We're really good with our machines. We're really good with our commerce. Uh, but somehow those fundamental relationships are, are not something that we've, in our two and a half centuries, have really worked on. So many of us grow up without a clear sense of relationship with our parents. And in Asia, you can say Asia, not just China, 
but in India, China, Korea, Japan, the Philippines, Vietnam, wherever the teachings of virtue went, that's the first lesson of any educated human being is to learn to at least heal that relationship with parents, which is often rocky growing up, but you learn to address it and, and uh, let the, the energy flow two ways. The idea is that we got a lot of goodness from parents in order to become people. We received a great deal. And they say the first lesson of a, of a child is to find a way to address it, to, to think, to repay that kindness. Um, understood that there's a lot of stories involved in that, and sometimes it's painful, but not always. Sometimes just knowing that we should think of a way to keep that relationship fresh, to keep our parents in our consciousness, is part of the healing. With that in mind, virtue begins in the traditional world. That's the start of virtue. And virtue, the Buddha is said to be one de bei. They say replete with all ten thousand virtues. The Buddha's virtuous nature is completely lit up. It's all uncovered, instead of covered over the way ours is more or less. And so uh, that's the first lesson. And it's the beginning of the path, and it's also the end of the path. Is that idea of uncovering our nature. So. Um, that's what we're doing. And so after doing that for 30 years, working on it, the texts look a little different. It's like Buddha Dharma through relationships instead of some abstract emptiness, right? Some sense that we're going to somehow wake up to the emptiness of all dharmas and get enlightenment, kind of like netting a mosquito, you know, or a butterfly. Oh, I got it. Oh, I lost it. Oh, you know, enlightenment is something you can grab, you know, and if you're quick, you get it. Oh, he got it first. Damn. You know, it's like, not that. But I'm speaking personally. That was an idea I had, that I, if I was quick enough and fast enough and sharp enough, I could snare enlightenment, you know. And uh, that's really a completely in line with the training that I had as a consumer, as a kid growing up in the Midwest. That it was important that you were an informed consumer and made the right purchase choices, you know, for your, make your dollar go farther. So anyway, there's a lot of unlearning and a lot of joyful learning to realize that this is wisdom from a heritage that goes back thousands and thousands of years. And one thing, the Indians and the Chinese and those ancient traditions have done is they've been looking at humanity longer. And that gives them a better chance of figuring out, I would say, what it means to be a human. Because those relationships... Um, have been our foundation since before there were gears on wheels, since before there was iron, since before mm, people understood uh, using of tool, use of tools. So we're, we're touching something very ancient and very valuable to the human experiment. And that's fully in these texts. That's the basis of these texts. And um, we try to lecture on them, explain them from that perspective of discovering joyful humanity and at the same time appreciating the fact that the Buddha, um, the Buddha's mind uh, was open to the ultimate point. The Buddha explored the human mind to its, to its boundaries to the point where there were no more boundaries, where the mind just kept expanding. And they say became congruent with empty space. 
So what does that mean? Well, the sutras know, and if we can be clear and quiet and pure, then our minds and the sutras can can expand together. So that's kind of the project. That's what we're about. Now, um, this is the Flower Dormant Sutra, and we've been going through. This is a fingernail, maybe not even a fingernail, of one hand, and the sutra is the whole body. We've got the first chunk of the first ground in a chapter called the Ten Grounds. And that chapter is only one of 40 chapters. So we're pretty modest in our, our goals. We're looking at a little piece of the text. And the text is talking about the Bodhisattva. The, the Bodhisattva means awakened being. And there have been historical Bodhisattvas. You can point and say, oh, there was one. But more importantly is to say, it's the Bodhisattva impulse in every one of us. And look much closer. This is not just historical, that once upon a time there were Bodhisattvas among us. I think the notion is that the Bodhisattva path is available in the next thought. But this is the shape. This is what a Bodhisattva would look like if that was me, if that was you. And... The, the sutra is describing what a bodhisattva looks like, sounds like, smells like, walks like, talks like, thinks like. It really opens a window into the heart of a bodhisattva. So you can look right at it and say, uh-huh, I can compare my thoughts to what the sutra is talking about and mm, I'm a whole bunch more selfish than the bodhisattva. Or mm, the bodhisattva is a whole lot less greedy than I am. Because this is a, it's a standard. It's kind of the, the yardstick by which you measure a bodhisattva's thinking, speaking, and behaving. So that's why it's interesting. Is because this is a living human model of a way to be that is, you could say, it's alive on the planet as much as we take it seriously. If we put it in the museum, put it behind glass, and cherish it and never touch it, then it's history. There once upon a time there was bodhisattva, you know. But if we open up the text and say, uh, I got to deal with those people that I don't particularly care for tomorrow, and maybe the sutra will give me a clue as to how I can do it without going wrong, you know, without offending them, without blowing up, without compromising my own sense of what I'm trying to do. That's, it's very much, Master Hua gave us the sutra and said, this is a handbook of wisdom. This is something you need just to go through the day. So with that attitude, that's why we're doing it. And um, our lecturing is a little bit non-traditional. We're trying really hard to to make it uh, to make it fit with the culture. So um, I don't want to maintain that this is the way it's done in China or when the the elder monks come out, Master Hua was definitely an innovator and encouraged the American disciples to, he said, use whatever tools you got to make it come alive in your culture. So that's what we're about. Now tonight, um, I'm going to lecture for about 45 minutes and then uh, set up our projector because I just got back from China. I just spent two weeks in China and 
had a really rich experience, chock full of, uh, of mm, images and impressions. And I want to share some of those with you tonight. So we'll take uh, some time tonight to look at pictures. And I, don't, I haven't got them completely uh, systematized yet because there's 2,045 photographs. And you're not going to see all of them tonight, thank goodness. We're going to pick out the highlights and uh, otherwise we'll be here forever. So I have to do a lot of delete, 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 delete to get to actually free up some space on my hard drive, my poor hard drive. But uh, three cameras, uh, Guoji and, and Xie Guozheng and I were all uh, snapping away. So we got 2,450 some photographs to look at. Um, and from those, I'll maybe show you um, the highlights. All right. Would you please turn to page 74 and 75 in your sutra? 074075. And if your text doesn't have 074075, that means you've got a text that hasn't had the last couple pages stuck in. This text is growing as we progress. We don't have it all translated right this minute. We're adding as we go. So pretty quick we've got to add another bunch of pages. Everybody set? 74 and 75? Okay, good. It's nice to have everybody here tonight. All right, we're up at the very top, the first two words here. Fozi, Piru Jin Shi, Shan Chao Lian Jin, Shuo Shuo Ru Huo, Zhuan Zhuan Ming Jing. Chiao Rou Cheng Jiu Sui Yi Kan Yong Pusa Yi Fu Ru Shi Gung Yang Zhu Fo Jiao Hua Zhong Sheng Jie Wei Xiu Xing Qing Jing Di Fa Suo Yu Shan Gen Xi Yi Hui Xiang Yi Che Zhi Li Zhuan Zhuan Ming Jing Tiao Rou Cheng Jiu Sui Yi Kan Yong Okay, over to the right. Disciples of the Buddha. For instance, when a goldsmith skilled at melting gold that should be smelting. We left off the S. Mm. Repeat, yeah, re that's a typo. Repeatedly puts it through the fire. It becomes progressively more bright and pure. Supple, pliant, and accomplished. And capable of being worked in accord with his talent. The Bodhisattva is also like this. He makes offerings to all Buddhas and teaches and transforms living beings, all of which is cultivation of the dharmas of purification of the grounds. 
Then he takes all the good roots and completely transfers them to the ground of all wisdom. Thus he becomes progressively more bright and pure, subdued, compliant, and accomplished, and capable of acting in accord with his intent. All right. Um, line four, one, two, three, four, worked in accord with his talent? No, intent. That's another typo. Capably worked in accord with his intent. Okay. So, um, what's going on is we're hearing about the these, it's called the ten grounds, ten stages. Our first stage, Bodhisattva, we've found out a lot about him earlier in the text. Uh, he deals with fear, subdues fear. The name of the, the first ground is called the ground of happiness. He discovers how to be happy that's not based on things. Happy that's not based on outside. He's happy based on what he's got or she's got inside. And that way it doesn't go away. We've learned that the Bodhisattva gives. This whole last like four or five lectures, he's been talking about giving. The Bodhisattva is very generous and learns how to renounce things. He learns how to make offerings of things, giving in all its various dimensions. So the Bodhisattva, this person, is um, planning to move towards Buddhahood Right? Buddhahood is the goal. But the difference in a bodhisattva is, bodhisattva says, I'll go last. I want to become a Buddha, but it doesn't have to be tonight. Um, when all living beings' suffering is over, then I'm going to be a bodhisattva. Then I'm a, I'll be a Buddha. Then I'm done. So when is that? Well, one at a time. You know, you'd do it day by day. You do it thought by thought, actually. Pain by pain. So the Bodhisattva is not looking at her wristwatch waiting to become a Buddha. Um, that project is big. Living beings, pain. Think of your family. Think of your depressed brother. Think of your aging parents. What kind of suffering is involved? Watching your eyesight go bad having to say ah a lot ah when you never did before we don't think of ourselves as getting old you know when you have to eat soft food a lot of pain a lot of suffering and it's hard to escape that but that's and the way our our bodies are set up we don't think in advance about age which is probably wholesome we also don't contemplate our death um on a daily basis, right? That would be morbid. That would be a kind of, of an afflicted use of the mind. So that's the suffering the Bodhisattva is addressing. It's not some abstract suffering. It's, it's got a face on it. He hears the sounds of uh, people whose bowels don't work anymore and who have to wear diapers just to get through the day. All those realities about the body's aging. Also, 
um, the Bodhisattva is very aware of children and the need to be firm and loving to children and takes joy in that. So Buddhahood happens at the end of all that suffering. So the Bodhisattva is, he's on the first ground. He's got nine more to go. So this is the first part of this incredible training of the mind that the Bodhisattva is doing. So now, tonight, there's an analogy. There's a picture to help us understand what the Bodhisattva is going through. What's it say? Disciples of the Buddha, when a goldsmith who is skilled at smelting gold, you don't melt gold, right? You melt gold, you got nothing. You got a puddle. Oops, there goes our gold. Uh, you smelt gold. It's that you put it into fire. A Bodhisattva skilled at smelting gold repeatedly puts it through the fire and the gold changes. It gets smelted. It gets refined. Um, you know the whole carrot system? You've heard 24 carat gold. Everybody knows that. Gold, before it gets smelted, is less valuable because usually it's mixed with stuff. It's mixed with what's called dross, D-R-O-S-S. And dross is the stuff that gets smelted out when it goes through the fire. So goldsmiths are used to fire. And they're really careful to heat it up just the right temperature so that the gold goes through it and the dross comes out and the same gold becomes more pure. So it gets progressively and it gets hammered on and, and uh, refined. It gets better and better, more valuable. We're also translating into Vietnamese at the same time. So you're hearing a Vietnamese translation happening. That's what we're hearing. So um, the Bodhisattva says, it's, the sutra says, it's like a goldsmith who's really good at refining gold and puts it through the fire over and over. You don't smelt it all at once. It becomes progressively more bright and pure, supple, pliant, and accomplished. And what? Capable of being worked in accord with the goldsmith's intent. He can make what he wants out of the gold. Um, if you've been to the Louvre, anybody been to the Louvre? Uh, the Louvre in Paris is this wonderful, incredible national museum. And some of the, the real uh, works of art that experts consider to be the best examples of marble carving, of goldsmithing, of oil painting, etc. are on display at the Louvre. It's an incredible resource for humanity. And one of the, for some reason, I forget why, when I was in seventh grade, my teacher gave me a research project on Benvenuto Cellini. Don't ask me why. That was my like term paper as a seventh grader. Benvenuto Cellini. And Benvenuto Cellini was an Italian goldsmith, among other things. He was a real artist, but gold was one of his best. And I remember Cellini made salt cellars. That's not like a salt merchants. A cellar, C-E-L-L-A-R, is like a salt, we call it a salt and pepper shaker, right? He made a salt cellar. 
for some pope out of gold. And it was utterly magnificent. I mean, nobody had ever worked gold to make it look so light. It was pure 24 karat gold, but it looked like it could float. And Cellini had this way to do it, right? So, here I was in the Louvre two years ago. There was the salt cellar right there in front of me, which I, as a seventh grader, had like done my homework, you know, and, and read about it in the Encyclopedia Britannica. And there was no such thing as Wikipedia because there was no such thing as the Internet back then. But um, I looked it up in various, and I got a biography of Benvenuto Cellini, which is worth reading. It's a good biography. And uh, there was the article. There was the actual item there under glass in the Louvre. Whoa, that was interesting to, to kind of bring back to life something that I'd studied as a kid way back. And I guarantee it was extraordinary. But what I was impressed with, I have to say, was that the gold looked rough. I don't know what I expected, but gold is an element, right? Is it a metal? It's not a stone. Is it a metal? Gold's a metal, right? It's an element. It's an element. The gold element. So it's got AU as the periodic table. Okay, it has a weight and it's got structure. So it's like it's an element. And this is as good as goldsmithing gets. It was rough. You could see the joints, you know. And I guess I'd expected some something like glass and something. It's not. It's not like flawless. Gold is really something. You can get it in your pores of your skin. People go mad over gold. Gold gives people fever, right? Gold fever. Think 49ers, right? And I'm not talking about the football team. I'm talking about 1949, I'm sorry, 1849, right? The gold rush. Whoa, people see that element and they just, their eyes turn red and they will kill for gold and did kill for gold. Lots and lots and lots of Chinese came from Fujian to, to America for gold. The name of San Francisco is Shan, Old Gold Mountain. So gold is really powerful right where we're sitting here in California. There was considered the finest example of goldsmithing right there in front of me in the Louvre and it was this fancy salt dish right, that Benvenuto Cellini made for, a, for an emperor. And wonderful, mind you, but I didn't realize that gold has limits. You can only make it do certain things, you know, because it's, it's, you have to smelt it. And this has its limits. This is an element, right? Bronze, copper. So there it was in front of me. And it looked very light, but it wasn't what I thought. It was funny. Gold is kind of, and maybe some of you have gold jewelry, gold settings, and you can see the skill of the goldsmith and making this metal do what you want with it, making it turn and twist and get really thin and not break. Gold is soft. You can put your fingernail in it, right? Like that. It's not like diamond. So how interesting to actually come to grips with this, this gold element. So this bodhisattva, he says it's like a goldsmith who can take this element and make it do stuff that he wants it to do. The bodhisattva, okay, every analogy has got the picture and then referring back to what we're familiar with. 
The picture is there to illustrate something that you can't grasp without looking at something like it. So that's what an analogy does. So it's like the goldsmith, who's good at melting gold, puts it in the fire over and over. Every time he does, it gets more pure, pulls it out softer, hammers it, bends it, puts it back in softer, hammers it, bends it finer, puts it back in, pulls it out. The Bodhisattva is like this too. He makes offerings to all Buddhas and teaches and transforms living beings, all of which is cultivation of the dharmas of purification of the grounds. Now that's a really long English sentence with lots of ofs in it. What does that mean? In Chinese it says, Pusa yifu ru shi, gong yang zhu fo. The Bodhisattva is just like that too. He makes offerings to the Buddha, to the Buddhas, plural, jiao hua zhong sheng, and teaches living beings. Jie wei xiu xing, qing jing di pa. Look at that sentence. It's on line three. Starts five characters in. Jie wei xiu xing, qing jing di pa. All four cultivating practices, purifying grounds, dharma, method, in other words. All of this is ways of cultivating things that make the grounds, i.e. this phase of the bodhisattva path, pure like gold. Pure. The goldsmith throws it in the fire, hammers on it, cools it off, throws it in the fire, hammers on it, cools it off, taking all the dross out bit by bit, making it smooth and soft. The bodhisattva makes offerings to Buddhas and teaches living beings doing the same thing so that his cultivation of the grounds become more and more soft. So he puts his body and mind in the fire of practice, hammers on it, and gets better and better at cultivating the grounds. So the fa here means methods. You could translate that and say, he makes offerings to the Buddhas and teach and transform living beings in order that he can practice the methods that make him better at being a bodhisattva. All right? Now, I want to point to, um, point to something in that sentence that makes sense, to, that, that links to things we talked about before. There's a, there's a really important dharma, a really important teaching that comes up over and over and over in this text, and that's called the Bodhi Resolve, the Putishin. In other traditions, they call it Bodhicitta. That's the Sanskrit word, the Putishin. The traditional explanation of the Putishin, which is like really central to what this is all about, is that you, they say in Chinese, it goes, Shang, Qiu Fu Dao, Xiao Hua Zhong Sheng, that they say above, in other words, to the ultimate point, you seek to become a Buddha. Chofo Dao. You seek the Buddha's path. And Xia, below or in the mundane, you transform living beings. Code language, right? You seek the Buddha's path, transform living beings. Those are two halves of the same project. To do one, you do the other. If you want to become a Buddha, you have to deal with your own anger. If you want to become a Buddha, you have to deal with your own jealousy. If you want to become a Buddha, you have to deal with your own feelings of low self-esteem, insufficiency, insecurity. 
If you want to become, if you want to be completely wise and compassionate, you have to start with your own arrogance. That's a rough translation of Shang Cheng Fu Dao Xia Hua Zhong Sheng, right? They say the Bodhi Resolve says, you yourself know that wisdom can be yours. That wisdom is not somebody else's only. You sitting right where you're sitting, sitting right where I'm sitting, have everything we need to become wise and compassionate the way the Buddha is. There's nobody who's got more qualifications to start with. So that's the first half, is shang chou fo dao. You can become a Buddha. And there are people who, when they hear that, go, yeah, that's what I want to do. What else is there to do? I may get a PhD or two PhDs or become Bill Gates and give my money away. And it's like, that's all good, you know, be a philanthropist. But then what? Then you get old, your teeth fall out and you die. And you regret a lot of stuff and you, you're happy about life. It's like, so that's good. That's normal. You know, I hope that, that that would happen to most people. They wouldn't die in wars or accidents or plagues or H1N1 or whatever. You just, many, many people can do very well just aging gracefully and dying. Anybody who's listening to a Buddhist sutra has to be somebody who's asked themselves the question, is there more? Is this all there is? Is this really what it's about? Is there more? There's got to be more. If you've watched your parents age and die, the thought has to occur, is this it? You know, is, and the Buddha asked that question. The prince asked that question. He said, is this it? And he was determined to answer that question. And you could say that all of the, the words in that huge 100-volume canon are his answer. A resounding, no, that's not all there is. There's more. So that's Shang Chou Fu Dao. You ask yourself, okay, so I'm born to die. I'm older right this minute. I'm closer to death right this minute than I was before I walked in the door tonight. It's like, yeah, the clock is ticking, but what about that? And some people may say, what a morbid thought. You know, you Buddhists, it's just all suffering all the time, right? You know, and you go, no, it's not. It's like one of the answers is find a way to make life joyful in between, not only for yourself. But then what? What about the old age, sickness, and death part? It's not pessimistic, it's realistic. And Buddha Dharma is, this doesn't sound arrogant, it's a religion for adults. Not by age. There are many adults who are young in, in years. But it's a religion for people who figure, ask themselves, what am I going to do about it? Alright? And I'm not pointing fingers at people who are waiting for grace from some exterior superior being, a creator deity, that's the answer that most of the world prefers. And it's a good answer. My mom hopes to be reborn in heaven, to be with God and Jesus. And I hope she makes it. I really do. 
And yet that answer for me didn't hit the spot. So, Shang Chiu Fu Dao, this Bodhi resolve is really central. So, it's built into our paragraph tonight. What does it say? The Bodhisattva is like the goldsmith who makes offerings to Buddhas. What is that? Shang Chiu Fu Dao and Jiao Hua Zhongsheng, Xia Hua Zhongsheng, Sing. He teaches living beings. That's what a Bodhisattva on the first ground is doing. He's working on the Bodhi Resolve. It's right there in the text. That's the Putishin, the complete Bodhi Resolve. So, in other words, now, here's the, this is the important connection to understand this. If we say, Shang Chiu Fu Dao, that you want to become wise, and women are included, right? Here is a teaching where it's not the case that women get behind the men and have to kind of wait a minute. You know, the men go first and then you follow. It's like, living beings currently in a woman's body have the same amount of wisdom that men have. The question is, what do you do with it? How do you cultivate it? If you cultivate it with lots of emotion, then that's one thing. If you cultivate it with lots of affliction, then that plants its own seeds. So, here we are in a body thinking, I would like to become as wise as the Buddha and as compassionate. How am I going to do it? That's the second half. And that's the Jiao Hua Zhongsheng part. The transforms living beings. Jiao Hua just means to teach. Teach and transform is again code language. Means what? It means that, as I understand it, this is my best shot at it. It means that you find a way to take all of the states of mind that occur to you and bring them to a place of what's called pingdang, to level even impartiality. So that as you go through your day, the things that happen to you, which are multiple things, don't throw you off. They don't move you from mindfulness. They don't confuse you. The things that happen during the day don't make you super angry. They don't make you super joyful. The things that happen during the day don't make you depressed. The things that to, to Jiao Hua Zhongsheng, as I understand it, means that you have enough Gong Fu, enough spiritual skill, that no matter what state arises, you can find your way through that state back to a place where you feel content, calm, and clear about your priorities. Which if the Bodhisattva, if you're following the Bodhisattva path, will include being kind, being compassionate, being wise, being unafflicted. Those are the priorities. And no matter what state is, you stay kind, compassionate, unafflicted and wise. What do I mean wise? Mm, I would say that that state of Jiao Hua Zhongsheng, no matter what happens during the day, you are able to act in a way that doesn't harm people. That's number one. Two, everything you do during the day is connected to that fundamental ethical code. 
No killing. No stealing. No sexual misbehavior. No dishonesty. No intoxicants. If you look at the behavior of enlightened beings that I've seen, it always has that as the foundation. I would, those are the standard five precepts if you're not familiar with them. That's a code that you find in the Old Testament, the Ten Commandments, you find it in the Quran, you find it in the, the teachings of Hinduism. What that means is everything you do with body, mouth, and mind is harmless. That's fundamentally, I think, the, fun, the first rule. That's wisdom. People who are unwise do what? Follow instead of that harmlessness they go basically on impulse, instinct. Oh, I felt like it. It felt good, so I did it. That's often not wisdom's course, right? Because why? You may, in the process of doing that, harm. And often it'll be involved with wealth, sex, fame, food, and sleep, those five desires. Okay, so we're working on that second one, Jiao Hua Zhongsheng, the second half of the Bodhi Resolve, right? What does it mean, code language, to transform living beings? It means that the states that come up outside, you react inside without losing your kindness, your compassion, your wisdom, and your virtuous balance. That the things you do don't harm. They're not selfish. They don't lead back to a me, a big me in the middle. That's the challenge of the Bodhisattva. So how are we doing if that's our yardstick? Sometimes better than others, right? Sometimes clear on that, other times like, man, just, you know, the pressure, just something came up and I just lashed out, you know. Something came up and I, I don't know, I just kind of, I saw that opportunity and I went ahead and put in those, inflated numbers in the box and announced that I, you know, the profits were bigger than they really were. You know. And you go, oh, yep. Why? Because you saw the faces that would go to college if you increased it by 5%. And you saw the house that mom has always wanted. There were reasons, right? And we see the temptation to vary a little bit from what we know to be the truth in order to do something else that's also good and we didn't teach and transform that living being. So that's why it's hard. That's why it's hard. It's because those states arise and we move from selflessness, no greed, kindness. And we, you know, that's tough. That's what it means to teach and transform living beings. So bodhisattvas are... To, to really practice the Bodhisattva way means that we have to really get down inside with our conscience, for one. That's why it's so hard. It's hard. What we do, we get those armies of trial lawyers in our mind who argue for the reasons why it's okay this time, doesn't matter. Nobody's noticing, right? All those rationales. And they call it the nibbling of ducks. You know, it's like... And it's a thousand good reasons why it's okay to to just grease a little bit, you know. And then when we sit still, like the next morning, we go, 
How could I have done that? You know. So it's teach and transform living beings is a slow process. It's not something that you do overnight. And that's why in this situation, they always talk about the importance of friends. The importance of good spiritual friends. How many times have we been in a situation where if we had had somebody to ask or somebody with a little more patience, a little more clarity, could have said, you see the results of this, right? Could have said that to us. We go, you're right. But without that friend or a friend who's encouraging us to go the other way, you know, come on, doesn't matter. You know, so we reserve a weekend in Vegas over Christmas. You know, so so what? We just go for the food anyway, you know. I'm just $100 this time. $100 limit. No more. Once that's gone, I'm not going to gamble anymore. You know, Like, whoa. I was amazed. I was completely amazed that we had a couple families here who had been listening to this sutra lecture for two years straight. Didn't miss a Saturday night. We've been going over this same old stuff, you know, that I'm saying right now. I've been saying forever. And... I assumed that they were like taking it in. They were always nod. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Then I found out they suddenly disappeared over Christmas vacation. Where did they go? Oh, don't you know? Oh, yeah. They have a suite at the Sands. They reserve it in July every year. You know, <laughs> They're in Vegas every single year. And it's just what the fam- family retreat, you know. And, okay, good. That's fine. That's all right. What's wrong with Las Vegas? Well, nothing. Las Vegas is neutral. It's just what the mind does when you go to Las Vegas, you know. It's like America's playground, you know. So okay, that's funny. I was I was surprised because I thought they like they agreed that that was a kind of a slow kind of of pain. So like I'm having a great time. I had to hawk my car, but it's worth it. I'm sure she's gonna come through this time, Lady Luck. Oh oh. Okay, so the Bodhisattva over time, slowly, 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 teaches and transforms living beings because it's talking about my thoughts and my habits and the influence of my dad and the influence of his dad and the influence of the TV shows I've watched for the last 15 years. All that stuff is called living beings. And they're in there. They're really in there. Your ears, your eyes, your nose, your tongue, your body, and your mind print those impressions of the world around and it's in this stream of consciousness that has a real power. And if you think hearing the sutra lecture is going to change it all overnight, not that quick because those habits arise when we meet the situation. That's what it means to transform living beings. It's not simple. It's not easy. We have to see a different model Resolve that that's the way I'm going to go and then have friends who help us, help us support that new path. Master Hua described changing habits like changing the course of a river, going down the stream, going down the bank, right? The river bank. Here's the course of the river. You're going to move that? Mm, Get your shovel. (laughs) Get your bucket. You know, let's do it one bucket at a time. Meanwhile... There goes the river. Oh, I'm going to change the course of the river. Yeah, do it. Bucket at a time. Change it. What else is there to do? 
you know, it's been going that way who knows how many lifetimes, they say the sutras. So the Bodhisattva says, um, in the course of making offerings to the Buddhas, which is what? Drawing near good friends. That's the model. Yeah, I could be wise. I could be compassionate. And everything I do doesn't hurt me or others. And then from that inspiration of being next to the Buddhas and making offerings to them, connecting with them in a wholesome way, I come back and transform living beings. Um, why? It's because by doing so, the, the methods of the the di, the grounds, get purified. They get like the gold. The dross goes away and the gold becomes finer. Your nature becomes more refined and what does the Bodhisattva do with that new habit, with that new wisdom? He gives it all away. Transference here, soyo, shangan, all of the goodness that comes from leading a spiritual path, following a spiritual path, he transfers, she transfers. Transference is a practice. We're going to do it tonight. It's, um, we do it with music these days, but you can do it with your next thought. Say, I give away all this goodness to all living beings with the wish that they also change harmful habits and become peaceful and happy people instead of afflicted hard cases. He transfers to Ichi Ejirdi. Ichi Ejirdi says the ground of all wisdom. That sounds pretty opaque, doesn't it? The ground of all wisdom. All wisdom here, we have a good word for that in English, which is omniscience. There's a state where your mind is completely wise. The Dharma and your mind are one thing. They're totally congruent. Everything you do is based on this deep, deep, deep insight. That would be the ground of all wisdom. The Bodhisattva transfers saying, may all beings go there. May all beings smelt the gold of their minds until it's pure so that they work with omniscience. Nothing that happens confuses them. No bribe is enough to make them cheat. Right? No promise of bigger happiness is enough to move them off the daily stuff of taking the path every step along the way. No shortcuts. All right. Now, I, I really like the last 12 characters, right? Zhuan Zhuan Ming Jing. That's the same line that we found up in line one. Exactly the same. Because it's like the analogy. The goldsmith works on the gold. Puts it back in the fire over and over again. It means the Chinese says time after time enters the fire. Turning, turning, brightly purifying, softer, gentler, accomplished, following intent, able to use. What does it mean? It means that as the Bodhisattva uh, makes offerings to the Buddhas, teaches living beings, cultivates the dharmas that purify the grounds, transfers that merit and virtue, over and over, his mind gets softer and he or she is able to do stuff that they want to do. How bitter is it to get a really good resolve and say, you know, I'm going to change. I'm going to be a better person. That's why I'm meditating. And that's not what I used to do. I used to be bad. 
right? But I want to be different now because I have people in mind who are counting on me to be different. And I'm going to talk differently, think differently, and behave differently. And then the situation rises and you fail. You bump up against some like invisible shield and you're back in your old habits. That's bitter. You can't do what you want. Or you can, but your friends totally don't appreciate it. Or your parents, right? Say, I'm going to be a vegetarian. Your mom says, no, you're not. As long as you're eating under my roof, you're eating what I cook. Who Who knows? Maybe mom was a vegetarian first. I hope so. But if you ever run into that, like, wall of habit where you want to change and you can't, that's really bitter. The Bodhisattva now, because he's been making offerings to Buddhas, teaching living beings, changing habits, now he gets that inspiration and he can do it. He can see the progress. He feels new and refreshed over and over. How joyful to actually see progress in this, in your life instead of in your portfolio or your salary. That's all good, but how much more powerful to actually change yourself. And now the Bodhisattva is able to see the changes, able to make it work. Um, This happens a lot in relationships. You, because of karmic energies, you find yourself arguing with your spouse or your your significant other or your, your siblings or your parents. And you know you don't want to do that. And sometimes you get clear and you think, how do we get to this place where all we do is snipe at each other? The tone of voice is just like a knife all the time. And you resolve. This is not what I promised I was going to do when I, what, marriage vows, or when I went on that retreat and came back and resolved to be different. And you're in that moment when something, the old thing happens, and you feel it rise, and you hear it, and because you've been meditating, because you've made that promise, somehow you step back in your mind, and there's a little bit of space And you can let it go and it doesn't hook. It goes by. And because you don't move your face, you don't move your mind, that person who's so important in your life sees you didn't react and melts. Have you had that experience? That is a whole new day. What's the difference? Samadhi, in a word. Samadhi is the state of stillness and purity that you get when you've been practicing. Meditation is often the way. If you're sitting every day, let's say, suppose that's your practice, or you could be reciting, you're sitting there and your knees hurt, right? And you've got 15 minutes to go. You know the bell's not going to ring till the time is up. The incense burned down. You've got to sit there. Your knees are going, you know, and you can't stand it, and you can't stand it, and you can't stand it, and you're determined, if I move, it's just all gone. It's just like, it all evaporates. You just sit there, and you think, 
Guanyin Bodhisattva, lend me a hand. You know, <laughs> sure, fool. You know, you're sitting there, and ding. Hey, it stopped hurting. Oh, and you get up, you walk, and it's like it's over. It's fine. You smelt it. You went through the fire. You know, and you made it out. And you think, boy, that was hard. And I did it. That's amazing. And you, your clothes are all wet because you were sweating, you know. You thought you were going to die and you didn't die. And it's just your knees. You're sitting there, right? And then your spouse, friend, sister, brother gets in your face. And they're singing their song, right? And you go, hmm, this is hard to take. Mm, this is really hard to take. It's really hard to take. And you don't move. And they go, I feel silly scolding you because you're not reacting. You know? And then they, what's different about you? And you say, I think I was just noticing that I really like you a lot. You know? You're really cute, even though sometimes we have trouble, you know? And, uh-huh. You know? And it's a new day in the relationship. Why? Because you could take it. Because you could be still and not, you know, catch fire. You don't get the hook, the habit. It's not their fault. It's not. It's just habit. That's Jiao Hua Zhongsheng crossing over living beings. But it comes from practice. It's not an idea. Because if it's an idea, you just get hooked all the same and you're off to the races, right? That's how to use this dharma to get through the day. Not easy. It's like putting gold in the fire. It burns. What is that fire like? It's hot in order to smelt out the dross, right? But that's the, what the fire is for. Meditation is one of those ways of putting your body and mind into the fire so that the dross smelts out and you don't have to move. You can take the fire. As far as I know, there's no shortcut. At some point, it's got to burn. And if you aren't willing to let it burn, then you'll just burn up in the fire, in the fight, you know. The that you and the dross are the same. But if you can be patient and let it burn, somehow there's this process that you lose a little bit of dross and the habits change and you find your deeper mind. You go deeper and you see that this person who you've been struggling with might be a bodhisattva who's there to cross you over, to teach you about your temper. Maybe that person is there at the breakfast table for a reason, right? Maybe that's the best person you could be with at this moment because they are there to teach you about your shortcomings by getting in your face until you get through it. And then you think, wow, thank you so much for teaching me about my ugliness. I really owe you a lot you know that's ideal often it's not so neat not so pretty but how wonderful to have a model that says that's a good thing to do we are definitely in a time 
when things fall apart? How many relationships do you know that last? Think corporations. Think jobs. Think teams. Man, when I was a kid, the Detroit Tigers were the Detroit Tigers, you know? There were no such thing as free agents. Are you kidding? You know, you expected Al Kaline to be there for 10, 20 years, and he was, right? Whitey Ford pitched for the Yankees forever. There was no such thing as trading around. Guys worked for, played for five teams. No way, right? Now, free agents. I'll be in another league next year, right? Nothing, no relationships last very long these days. It's called the Mofa Shredai, the time of the Dharma's end. This is a time where struggle is kind of the, the standard. National identities are breaking up. Um, relationships, one-to-one. Families are atomized down to a place where it's hard to find three generations under one roof, right? Anybody live with their grandparents? Some, yeah. Asian communities tend to hold on to them longer, but when they come to the West, same old story. So this is a time when it's hard to stay together in relationship. The Buddha Dharma says that relationships are the path. That's where we cross over living beings, transform living beings. While there might be somebody who goes out in the mountains and finds a cave and, you know, sits by themselves and wakes up, they still have to come back to the marketplace. And that's when the trouble starts. So if you really want to do what the Buddha did, we have to do it in the midst of our relationships. So a little bit of stillness when the fire burns is really valuable stuff. So you should thank those folks who put you back in the fire over and over again to see if you really smelted out your dross yet, you know. And if you can, because you've been meditating regularly or reciting the Buddha's name, then that very same person, flip it over, they are your best Dharma friend. They are truly your Shanjushu, your Kalyanamitra, your good and wise advisor. So, and then what happens? We can do what we want with our minds. We can, we can, our minds perform according to our intent. We can do what we want with our best intentions instead of always banging up against that. It didn't work out. It didn't happen. So, that's the theory. How does it work in reality? Mm, a lot of stories, right? Okay. Um, time has come to move from the sutra to stories and um, today was really an amazing day what a blessing I have in that um, Thursday night I got to speak to James's group James Beres has been here for 15 years every Thursday night the Spirit Rock uh, East Bay group and it was my turn this week, the time went so fast. Man, I was over before it began. And I had a lot of things to share, but didn't have a chance. Today, uh, this morning, I went to San Francisco 
to the Bay Area Young Adult Dharma Circle, which is very cool. It's a variety of DRBYs. Uh, and one of the neat things was that DRBY, our young adult group, mixed in with the East Bay Dharma Council, the uh, Insight Meditation Youth Group, and three or four others for a day long over in San Francisco at a rented church basement. And to talk to all these age 20, 21, 22-year-olds who are like looking into meditation for the very first time or who have had some practice but want to connect it to something bigger, that was really fine, really good energy. So we're hoping that was the start of something. And then this afternoon, huh, went down to San Jose to Orchard School to talk to Tsuji Youth, 200 kids from any teacher who did what I did would have to have their head examined. I taught 200 young people ages 8 to 18, all in the same room for two hours with their parents, right? Age 8 to 18. If you teach school, you know that that's three different groups, right? Guaranteed, at any given minute, half of the group is bored. You can't avoid it, right? If you talk to the, something that teenagers want to hear, the 8-year-olds are, can we get on to something else? And if you talk to the 8-year-olds, the teenagers are... Oh, man, you know, and then the adults are watching all this go on. And so it's like, what a challenge to try to thread the needle to get something that everybody likes. And the topic is always changing. The topic today was simplicity, living a simple lifestyle. Okay, mind you, these are young people who grew up in Silicon Valley, Santa Clara County, Here's a statistic for you. Pull this off the web. Santa Clara County, if you look at counties of the United States, how many counties in California? 40. How many counties across the country? Thousands. Santa Clara County, in terms of per capita income, ranks number 10. There are only nine counties in the whole U.S. that are richer per capita than that corner of California. And here are these kids, and I'm talking about simplicity, right? And they're going, never heard of it, you know? What are you talking about? Simplicity. You know, anything I want basically is available to me. And that's a good thing. Not to say you should feel guilty. It's that you say, okay, be grateful for all that you have. There's a saying that goes, for those to whom much is given, much is expected. So I talked last week, last time, about a young man in Africa named William Kamkwamba. He's from Malawi. He's the, in the poorest corner of Malawi. They have corn to eat only if there's water to grow it. And they've been in drought. The crops fail year after year. He couldn't come up with 80 bucks to pay for school books. But William Kamkwamba, this 18-year-old, didn't quit. What did he do? He was watching the wind. And he said... I bet if I harness the wind, I can make the water come, he said. So what did he do? He built a windmill, used it to power a pump, pumped up water for the whole village so they could grow crops. And then he said, I want to listen to the radio, but there's no electricity. So he harnessed the wind, got a windmill going and generated electricity, created his own switch, his own generator out of nothing, out of bike tires and old tractor parts. 
and created electricity and powered the radio and is now going to this academy in South Africa for genius children. So this is William Kamkwamba and he's been toured around the world to see real wind power going in California and generators and this, he's written a book now and so I showed these kids, I said, here's somebody who's got nothing and created everything. How about you guys? <laughs> you got everything, what are you doing? And they're going, yeah, you know, I could, yeah. So you just raise the bar and challenge them. And these are the smartest, most blessed kids in the world. Nobody's got more blessings than a Taiwanese-American kid in Silicon Valley. You know, they're going to rule the world. And so say, do it. Go aim high, you know. So that's fun to do that. Um, so that was this afternoon. And then to get to be with all of you tonight, to share the sutra and trip to China is multiple blessings indeed. So what I would like to do is um, first dedicate merit. Um, you've got it in your sutra, the dedication of merit. And we'll do what the Bodhisattva does. He's dedicating merit, or she is, to Iche Jirdi, the grounds of all wisdom. What you dedicate merit to is up to you. kids sang along today. It was beautiful to hear 200 young voices singing the song. They've been singing it now for about five years when I go down there. So make that wish, please.
Now, I'm grateful to Master Jin Fan for staying behind tonight so he could join in because last time we were in China, he and I were together um, for the forum in March and now we were back for another event. It's going to take me just a minute to get set up so if folks will please sit patiently while we uh, set up the projector and we'll get underway here in a minute. The purpose of this trip was to attend an event in Jiangxi province, which is our teacher's
the biggest shoyits that I've ever seen, master shoyit. This guy pulled it out of a pill bottle and he carried it in his pocket. He said, you want to see this? <laughs> yeah, we do. That's pretty astounding. That's, that's uh, they say, testimony to the purity of his cultivation. That's what was in his, in his, in his actions. So, different pictures of it. Okay, now, uh, here we go. Um, here's our, now we had a delegation. There was uh, 17 of us who came from Taiwan, uh, from Vietnam, from China, and from the U.S. to come together, 17 of us, to, to uh, go through these two weeks in China, taking pictures of the Sharia. Uh, okay, this is interesting. They passed out to, to the, the speakers, of which I was one, this uh, huge copper or bronze image of Master Empty Cloud. The photos don't really do it justice. Um, we're going to set that up here in the Buddha Hall later. Okay. Uh, here's what happened. The first thing was uh, here's the crowd. There were 3,000 people there. Uh, this is Jeremy Monastery. And it's uh, it's a temple that's been there for 1,300 years, and it's, you can imagine a sacred space that's been in been there in the same place on top of this mountain. You get there, you go round and round and round and round. It takes an hour of curvy roads, mountain roads, to get up to this place. And uh, there it is. When you get there, it's called Cloud Dwelling Mountain. It's a place where they're really practicing chanting. Monks are really sitting there, and nuns too. Uh, they have a chant hall where people go in and stay all year round. They come out once on Sunday afternoon, walk around the lake, and go back into the chant hall. They really are cultivating heart. The sign there says, commemorating Master Xu Yin's uh, entering Nirvana 50 years ago. So this is our delegation. We'll go quickly through these. Madalena and Goku. And uh, this was early. The monks were in getting suited up, getting dressed up. Our, our lay people were sitting out uh, in the chairs. There's Ron Epstein. And we were about to process out and give speeches. And the talks were just to, to say, you know, we've come from so far away to honor Master Shuyan. And uh, these are the, the bodyguards, which are all women, there to keep, keep the peace. Master Shu Yin's 50th anniversary. We'll go quickly through this. They were looking for something to do. Lots of pictures. Goji loves to get pictures. Ron, this is uh, Victor. Victor Jung came up from Shanghai. People know Victor. He's one of our. There's his wife. And uh, this is our delegation. Yogo Jun. There's a Fuzhou Xiao from San Jose, people know. Okay, oh, there's my name plaque, my name card, and my water bottle. <laughs> no person. Master Xu Yin's uh, Memorial Museum. The monks there grow their own food, because it's way up on the mountain. I mean, you twist and turn to get up there, right? And there's not a lot of deliveries, and so you grow your own food. That's the place where they say a day of no work is a day of no eating. That's the place. 
Now, uh, Jungu Monastery, they say, is has been for the last couple of years China's best place to really meditate. That's where China's really going on there. So they built this pagoda, the crowds gathering. There's the logo for this. On the bottom it says Jiangxi, uh, Jiangxi Province, Yunjushan Cloud Dwelling Mountains, True Sessions Chan Monastery. So we were looking at the crops, right? And here we go. All right. So here it says, is the right button? It says Jiangxi Province, river, river west, west of the river, cloud dwelling mountains, true sessions of Chan Monastery, commemorating Master Xuan's 50th. Okay, lots of it. Here come the monks. The monks are coming out now. And walking along. Now, the elders, people who actually lived with Master Shuya are still around. Five of them. Five of them. And unfortunately, I have my glasses that change color in the light. And <laughs> <laughs> you're wearing them, you don't know it, right? And it's like, I didn't have my other glasses. And what a bummer, because I look like some movie star. And it's like, <laughs> not what I intended at all. California, right, right, like a bodyguard, right, so, uh, secret service, has he got a microphone, yeah, so, <laughs> Victor was elbowing, well, gee, tell him he's got his glasses on, okay, who is this, this is 
Master Yichun. He is currently the president of the Buddhist Association of China. He's the real guy. He's full of light. You just, when you're around him, you just feel really, he's general. He spent 10 years in prison uh, during the Cultural Revolution. He got beaten on a lot, and he never retreated. This is Master Shengyi, who is uh, going through really bad health right now. He is another one of the elders who was, uh, this is Yichun. This is a real Chun. Uh, he, he speaks with a very thick southern accent. You can't quite understand him. But he's uh, a real monk. We stood up and they played. She the Chinese national anthem. Nobody put their hand over their heart, so I didn't do that. This is the current abbot. His name is, is Chun Wen. He's, he's the youngest abbot in China right now. He was handpicked by Chun Yi, uh, Yi Chun. To be the to be the new guy here, Chen Ru, and they when it was over, put their palms together. They did Sanbao Ge, the three treasures song, and everybody did that. Then it was time to sit down and start the speeches, and one by one the politicians got up, and it's really important. This is still China, and politicians are really they got to talk. And so they all stood up and made their political speech about Master Xu Yin. And so, you know, this, they're not, this, this man is the local religious cadre. Very friendly. Very, they introduced him as a real bufa. He has made it possible for General Monastery to, to succeed, you know, because he's, uh, he's got a really good heart. There are some that are obviously couldn't care less about Buddhism. They're just there to, to, to do their job, you know. So that was fun. And then I was there to represent Hai Wai, the overseas <laughs> friends of the Dharma. And uh, so I, I spoke. And, yep, I know, it was blasphemous. <laughs> now I couldn't take them off, because I had my notes on my phone. And literally tiny print. My husband, they, I didn't want to say the wrong thing, so I'd written out my, my speech and I put it on my phone, thinking I could read it, but I didn't know we were going to be outdoors. Those glasses changed color outdoors. Right? <laughs> so you take the glasses off and you can't read your notes, and so I was stuck.
the the influence of Shirpu through his sutras and the reputation of City of Ten Thousand Buddhas is huge right now in China. So this is this is our delegation. Um, big crowd. We there's Master Jinyong. Jinyong was there uh, with me this time and uh, posing. Okay, so that's that's the story of Jungle Sutra. Just to say that through Sherpa's lectures that have been published in China, uh, in a minute you're going to see a monastery called Baiyun uh, Su. Uh, and the abbot in Baiyun Su is now in his mid-30s, like most of the abbots in China. And he says um, two books made him resolve to be home. One was Master Trinhua's Sutras that were passed around on Nibio sheets hand to hand under the table back in the 1990s, the early 90s. You didn't have a book. You had this Nibio sheet. You would say, read this. You understand what the Sutras said? Read this. And it was hidden, you know, dog-eared and no cover. And you just passed it around from hand to hand. Now they're printed in beautiful covers in Beijing by the government. He said he read those. The other thing he read were the bowing journals, those three steps on bow. That he, so he said he knew about that from early on. Okay, um, everywhere we went, people said, oh, Shenhua Shangren, I've read his sutras, his commentaries. They're the best thing going. Because why? You can understand. Rumito, Chinchu. They're clear and you can understand. They're not philosophy. Okay, so we went to Lushan. Lushan is this incredibly beautiful Chinese mountain. People have all seen Chinese landscapes, right? Clouds, mountains, water. This is where those painters got their inspiration. This Lushan. I'll show you a little bit of it. Lushan, they say it's a place name, so it's New Mountain, I guess. Hard to get a translation for it. Uh, but take a look at some of these, some of the spaces. Here we go. Now, unfortunately, this projector is really tiny. You're not going to see the colors the way they are. This projector doesn't quite do the colors right. Like okay, we will. Coming up here, right down here. This is the brain. All right. Here we go. Oh. This is in Jiangxi. It's not far from General Su. Okay. The point I want to make is, uh, okay, if uh, let's say if we had a map of China. Beijing is up here, right? Tianjin is up here. Shanghai is over here. We are down here. Now, southern China, Nanhua Si is on further down. Taiwan's over here. Okay, we're in kind of southern central China in that area, Jiangxi province down there. It's we flew from Beijing straight down to a place called Nanchang, which is where you where you land and then go by bus to Zhengzhou. Lushan is down there. Jungwu Su is the place for Chan, and in a minute you're going to see the place for Pure Land. But this is Lu Shan. Different, different personalities with different lights in the same water. Very beautiful. Uh, that's the hotel. Okay, never mind. All right. Uh, let's get to the three. Here's our group. This Master Jing. We had a great tour guide. Her name was Zhou Ling, and she was full of stories. She memorized all the poetry that was written in Lushan. One by one, she told all these poems. Everybody loved 
hearing her talk. Okay, check the personality display as the sun rises. It's beautiful. You see the subtle colors over here as autumn comes in. Apparently in the spring it's full of flowers, but autumn has charm. Okay, there's a place called Immortal. Here we go. There's the group. These characters were written by an emperor. Uh, okay, Immortal's Cave. We're going to go through the hole down to Immortal's Cave. Xianrendong. Immortal's Cave. Chinese landscape stuff. Beautiful. We're down. This was a fairly clear day. Here's the cave. It's a real cave. And it's also a Taoist temple. The Taoists are there at the same time. And they had these Hollywood Taoists there with their hair, you know, practicing Kung Fu. There, there is local color. There's the lions, really nice lions outside the door of the cave. And a Taoist immortal, Lu Dongbin, is sitting inside. So the Taoist grab this cave. Very scenic, very like you think you're in some romance of Chinese novel, you know, Three Kingdoms or something. So we, we did half a day of sightseeing, and then in the afternoon, after seeing these incredible sights, um, we went, oh, you need to see Mao Zedong's calligraphy, right? It's <coughs> Mao Zedong writing Shen Rendong. Anybody care? This is supposed to be a face lying down, looking up at the sky. Here's the chin, here's the mouth, here's the nose, here's the eyebrows. Yeah, Omega. So, okay. All right, then we go down the road, and here's our, here's our guide. There's Master Genial. Okay, uh, that's a lunch. Here is the place called, um, where are we? Um, there's a place called Dongling-si, Eastern Forest Monastery, Dongling. Dongling is the place where Master Huiyuan started the Pure Land teaching. Eastern Forest is right on Lushan, and this place is very cool because they're actually practicing Pure Land Buddhism all day long. They have uh, their Buddha Hall is going strong, and they have their special way of reciting Buddha's name. They go with feet. They go na mo o o mi mi o o o o like that. Na. They they put one step with every syllable, and they go all year round. And the place is really simple, but it's really got the air of a place of real cultivation. It's a very powerful place, Dongmin-si. It's been there since 386. 1700 year old sacred space. 
Dongning Su, Dongning Monastery, Eastern Forest Monastery. Here's our group. People will recognize YC over here. YC. This is Hong uh, Ziyin. This is Yo uh, Bo Zhen. That's Larry Xie. This is a monk who joined us. This is Zhao Xiaosheng, who was here for years before I went back to China. There's Victor. There's Ron. Ocean. Ron's wife. Bo Ji. Uh, this is Victor's wife. There's Bo Kup. Uh, Shirley from San Jose, Magdalena, and then uh, this is uh, what is it? Yang uh, Yi Qi, YC sister. So familiar faces. Here is the director. His name is Dao Yan. This guy is very neat. They've got a huge web presence, first of all, and he has created a cultivating space where people. There's first of all, there's no door tickets. Now, does anybody care about that? You care if you go in China to most monasteries, you have to pay money to get in the door. Most monasteries are required by the government to sell door tickets. And he said, nothing to do it. General monastery also didn't sell door tickets. But it's up to the individual monks if they can bully the government into letting them do it the Dharma way. Because why? The government wants the money. Right? And the monks say, nope, we're not going to do it. That's the way they did it here, because they have good guanxi with the local government. So that's one thing. The other thing that they're doing at Dongling Su, which is very neat, is they have seclusion rooms. They have Biguan places. Now, we took a tour, first of all, and he showed us a 1,200-year-old tree that has been there forever and forever. This is the... In the Pure Land, they talk about the Lotus School, Lian Shouzong. This is the Lian Shou, the, the Lotus Pond, where 12 monks decided they were all going to become Buddhas using the Pure Land. This monk is very neat, and he's invited us to send a delegation of either monks or nuns and or young people to go there. Now, let me show you. This is incredible. There's a, a little plaque that talks about who has been to Dongling Si, who are famous people in Chinese history. This list is kind of mind-blowing. It's in the second paragraph here. The people who have been to Dongling Si, who, are, who count in Chinese, Chinese history, you who, people who can read Chinese, look, we're starting right here. Okay, how about Liu Yimin, Xie Lingyun, Tao Yanming, these are the famous poets. Buddha Bhadra, Buddha Bhadra translated the Avatamsaka Sutra right there. Meng Haoran, the poet. Master Zhizhe, Zhizhe Dashi. Jian Zhen, Dao Dashi, the one who went to Japan. Uh, Han Yu, Bai Jun Yi, all the famous poets, all the famous scholars from Chinese history, right, have all been there. Uh, Li Ao, Wang Yangming, the Neo-Confucian, Wang Tingjian, the famous filial son, right? Zhou Dun Yi, Wang An Shi, Su Dongfo, Yue Fei, right? Lu Yao, Fan Cheng Da, uh, who else? Dong Qi Chang, Wang Shibo, all these people, Zhu Xi, right? Famous Neo-Confucian, they've all found out at Dongling Si over the 1700 years it's been there. This place is really something for uh, Chinese history. Eastern Forest. T-O-N-G-L-I-N. Dong Dong Monastery. 
So we took the tour and we saw the famous stones that were carved and the calligraphy that's there on and on. And then he took us up to see some of the sites. And all the time the monks are in Buddha Hall chanting. We went to see their abbot, and their, their abbot came down to see us, and he's a, he lectures on Pure Land. He's a very distinguished lecturer. There he is. We'll go quickly through this. He gave us some gifts, and we gave him some gifts. We gave him sutras, our, our translations. He gave us these images. Okay, I'm going to flip through these quickly because the time's going. Okay, then it was back to Master Daoyuan, who took us around to show us what they'd done. This architecture has been there for 1,700 years. And he took us up to this very neat pagoda. The kind of the, the this is the topography, as you see this pagoda from the, from the, all of the mountains all around. Oh, this is interesting. It says, within the monastery, we absolutely forbid you to, to liberate the following animals. No pigs, no kitties, no chickens, no puppies. Why, people dump their animals. And all these animals are, and they can't, the monks can't keep track of them, so they want to die. There are some chickens that got liberated. <laughs> so we went up to the pagoda, and it's way up tall. It's this ancient pagoda that has been rebuilt recently because in the Cultural Revolution it was destroyed. So, there's Bojiji again. You know whose camera it was, right? So here's the pagoda, and it's like, what, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, ten, ten, ten levels. And this is the hall where Buddha Bhadra translated the Avatamsaka Sutra. This is the 60-year-old Avatamsaka. So talk about Buddhist history, right? You should buy into the Jodhipani. Amazing, amazing history. And this talks about that accomplishment. This is the room where it happened. And of course, I'm interested in the Avatamsaka. So here is a, a place where people come to make offerings. Now, this is neat. This is the future uh, seclusion hall for monks and nuns who want to be one, who want to enter seclusion and recite the Buddha's name for 10 days, 20 days, a month, six months, a year, who knows how long. It's still being built, but it's going to be done very quickly. Here is the place where the lay people come. This is already at work. If you are a lay person and you want to spend you know, up to six months in seclusion reciting the Buddha's name, come, it's free. They'll give you a room, you can do it. They have these delegations from Malaysia and Singapore who come for 90 days in seclusion and recite the Buddha's name. Now, what does that mean? No cell phone, no computer, no credit cards, right? You go there to cultivate. And they've got room for 100 people here. But they're really doing it. Really doing the cultivation of pure land. Now, their big thing is they've built this giant Buddha and it's going to be dedicated next year. So, Tao Yan Tasher invited us back to join to, for the dedication of this huge Buddha image. That's going to be a big deal next year. Um, one of the sites is the Tongming Chan, the Wisdom Spring. The word is that if you drink this water, you get smarter. <laughs> so I drank a whole lot as well. <laughs> and they, they have verses that talk about how much wiser you get. <laughs> so I really drank. 
This is the 1,200-year-old uh, ginkgo tree. Oh, my goodness, 1,200-year-old trees put out a real special energy. This is, these are the calligraphy written by the famous monks of history, famous lady. There's the pagoda up above. Very cool. This is Eastern Forest Monastery, Gongensu. It's at the foot of Lushan, and it's really going strong. Very nice to see. So, in one visit, we went to the heart of Chan and the heart of the Pure Land. Very cool. Now, um, this is interesting. You know, this will be the last one. It's going to take us about five minutes to see it. We uh, landed in Tianjin. We went from Nanshan to Tianjin and met a snowstorm. It snowed three inches. All the cars were covered. It was like 30 degrees. Really cold. We were dressed California style. We shot us. You know, so we got off. Now, we come to Tianjin because we're, uh, we're going to lecture at a university called Nankai. And also because one of the nuns who lives in Tianjin is a friend. She's been to City of 10,000 Buddhas in the last couple of years. This, believe it or not, is a restaurant. China is booming. China is wealthy these days. All right. Restaurant. There we go. <laughs> Who's camera? Okay. So we um, were invited by this nun, who is right here, to come back to Tianjin and lecture. Now, I was there last year with Master Tian Fan, but we weren't allowed to lecture. Because why? I got the wrong color eyes. I got blue eyes. I'm considered to be a Wai Guo Chuan Jiao Shi, a foreign missionary, and I am forbidden to start out with the So, any illegal missionary activities I need to take part in, okay? So, if she invites me in her monastery to lecture, Sure, why not? 
So she gets the microphone and she introduces me to, to a crowd that is growing bigger and bigger and bigger. And now I put my hat on and we're all freezing and standing there and so I lecture and turn around, speak the Dharma to a few people. 3,000 people. <laughs> And it's like, okay, and they want to hear the, the funny monk from America, you know. They want to hear Master Shane Hawes' Dharma. That's what they want to hear. They want to hear Sherpa's Dharma. Because Sherpa's already entered Nirvana, and they, they hear that his disciples from America are here, so what can they say? So that's they want to find out. So here's a delegation, freezing. Here are the nuns. These are her nuns. And notice they're all bundled up, standing in rows, lightly. And... Uh, the crowd is growing bigger and bigger. So what do I, what can I do? I tell the story of Doug Powers and the Patience Mantra. Renai, Renai, Shuya Renai, Chiemo Shanti, Sopoha. Patience, patience, gotta have patience, don't get angry, Sopoha. And people enjoy the mantra, because it's fun to hear Master Srinivas' English language mantra in America. Right? Patience, patience, gotta have patience, don't get angry. So they're having a good time, right? Everybody's like laughing and having a good time, getting fun. So on both sides of me, I can hear the delegation saying things like, are you done? <laughs> it, it, it's time, problem. You can stop now. <laughs> Enough, right? We're having a good time. So it's like, okay. So uh, we wind it up and you know, maybe points. <laughs> okay, time to stop talking already. It's freezing out here. So, really fun. And so I hand the microphone back to her and she says, Anybody got any questions? <laughs> oh, of course they do. <laughs> oh my god. So, time to answer questions. And the questions came right from the street. You know, anybody's got a question, here's a chance. So the point of this is that things are changing in China in terms of Dharma. Anybody got any questions? So people are, the guy stands up and asks a nice question. How do you cultivate in America? Well, you know, how do you cultivate in China? Pretty much the same. The mind is the same, the Dharma is the same. People aren't that much different. But we meditate more. We emphasize meditation. And that's a door that many people enter. So people ask about great compassion, and they ask about how do Master Shrinwa teach Americans, and it's really good, really fun, to uh, meet real folks asking real Dharma questions on a sunny, snowy day in Tianjin, in the cold. So when we were done, Pictured on the wall. This is when Master Miao Shen 
went to CTDV. And there's a picture of Hung Yin and Hung Jo. Right? So this is like this, this spring. She was there. Here's Ron. Hung Jo, Madalena. So Miao Shen Foster has been to the US. She's got a bunch of pictures on her wall of the, the teachers that have visited her. Here's their pagoda. So she lectures on the Dharma in Tianjin. She's really got a lot of stuff going on. So here are her nuns' traditional instrument orchestra. And that, <laughs> right, and you should hear the music they play. It's really nice. They're they're trying hard to keep it, you know, just proper. And but the music they play is really nice, and it's considered this is really Fangbian. This is an expedient Dharma for China to have the nuns play the music. Then. Uh, they have they got recordings, yeah, they've already issued them. Oh, uh, not this minute. No, next time. Then she had a chorus, and the chorus stood up and sang. Then she had her layman, layman wearing these really shiny yellow shirts, got up and played their music. That was really nice. So then we went out, got said goodbye, got back on the bus, and there we go. So that was Tianjin, and uh, looks to me like things are changing in China in terms of um, tightly controlled Dharma speaking. Um, people seem to want to be able to hear the Dharma more than ever now. So very nice to have this opportunity. Bye-bye. Okay, now we've run out of time. We've only got the first three stops. Where else we went, and I'll tell you. Nankaiashe, right, that was next. Um, We'll do that next time. We went to Nankai University, which uh, produced who? Nankai University produced Dong Xiaoping, Zhou Enlai, and Wang Jiaoh, right? The current president, premier, and Zhou Enlai. And we lectured on uh, Dharma, played my guitar, um, had fun. And then we went to Shanghai for uh, a celebration of our 60th birthday, everyone. And we went from Shanghai to uh, Beijing, and then Beijing, we lectured at Beijing University, and on the last day, uh, we went to Bai Su, which is a place, Bai Su um, wants us to come and uh, bring our young people for a camp, for a Dharma camp, they do Dharma camps every year, Bai Su. That's a place outside of Beijing that's really actively doing Dharma. We met a monk there, his name is Minghai, and uh, there's a real connection with with Bai Then on the last day, we went to the Mongchen, to the Dragon Spring, to meet with Master Shishan, who's going to be the new chairman of the business. So we'll do all that uh, next time, and I'll do that the same time. Alright, so that's just a quick and simple for our time. Um, you saw the whole bunch without editing. I'm going to edit those down to manageable numbers to give a flavor when you stop. In general, uh, what I was impressed with was the, um, the amount of, of devotion that people have for our teacher. Um, he's considered to be the one who keeps the Dharma going. And City of 10,000 Buddhas is second only to the pure life. People's perception is there's pure land of Amitabha and then there's city of 10,000 Buddha. That's how it's seen in Buddhist China.
Before I let you go, I got one announcement to make, which is tomorrow at 6 p.m., Joanne Shenandoah and her husband, Doug George, are going to be here with a program called Iroquois Rituals of Thanksgiving. We have the, the voice of Native America, Joanne Shenandoah, who's been here twice before, with her husband, who's a Mohawk journalist, singing and talking about how Native Americans do real Thanksgiving. Okay, we always kind of talk about Indians at Thanksgiving. We get to hear from the granddaughter of Chief Shenandoah tomorrow about the real story. So, 6 o'clock, please do come. Probably come early because I think it should be a good crowd. And we'll see you. See you tomorrow, 6 o'clock.